It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The heat is beginning to abate, ladies and gentlemen. The sleepless nights are always at an end. The thunderstorm clouds are gathering, and we are attempting to navigate our way through the choppy waters of the woke world in which we now live. Today, we will be bringing you more details from the Home Office on the scandal of the asylum-seeking business, because make no mistake, it is a business. And we have got a whole host of pieces of paper here, uh, which I'm going to impart information from to you, uh, which you will find absolutely extraordinary, because I can't believe sometimes what I'm reading. But the Home Office have sent us a whole sheaf of information uh, on the asylum-seeking business, where asylum seekers are from, where they're going, which areas of the country they've gone to, which nationalities they are. It really is quite a fascinating breakdown. Nobody else does this because nobody else does journalism anymore. They all just read off sheets that get given to them. Uh, they all go down to Dover and think it's a good idea to go around waving at the asylum seekers. Are you all right? Is everyone okay? That's not journalism. If you want to go work for the Red Cross, go get a job at the Red Cross. Don't go working for Sky TV, for God's sake. Today, we'll be telling you exactly where the illegal migrants entering this country are going, region by region. And we'll be asking why it takes as long as it does for any asylum application to be processed. Home Secretary Priti Patel wants to change the system and make it work faster and more efficiently. And that would be good for everybody concerned. Meanwhile, of course, the Labour Party are throwing rocks from the shoreline and making out the government lacks compassion, all the while providing absolutely no solutions at all. Well done, Sir Keir Starmer. Another great policy. Let's do absolutely nothing at all. We'll be checking in with Benjamin Lockmane from Migration Watch to see what he makes of it all. 03444991000. Coming up later on, we're joined by author and academic Helen Dale with her take on the week. She'll be telling us all about woozles, uh, apparently what they are, what they do, and why they don't actually exist. But people like following them around for some reason. It's all about cancel culture and wokery. Plus, we'll be asking how a water company in South East England appears to be running out of water. You've got one job, guys. You provide water to the houses of the people that pay you to provide them with water. If you can't manage to do that, maybe it's time to give up and start doing something else. Also, we'll be asking why Public Health England hasn't been shut down yet. Apparently, they can't count. They don't have to have an abacus. They don't have a calculator. They've got it wrong. They've counted people dying when they didn't die. They've counted people who died of COVID-19 when they didn't die of COVID-19. They've missed other people that died of COVID-19 but didn't die of COVID-19. It's a complete shambles. 03444991000. Only in Britain, ladies and gentlemen. As ever, we want to hear from you, the eyes and ears of the independent republic. What are you hearing? What are you seeing? And where are you heading? We'll be heading over to California later on with Donna Harvey to test the waters on Harry and Meghan's new £15 million mansion in Santa Barbara, complete with a wine cellar, a library, and 16 bathrooms. And I'm not living in a house unless it has at least 15 bathrooms. That's all. That's it. And space for five cars in the garage. Uh, it's National Prosecco Day as well. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station in the land. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. I mean, in what world do you need 16 bathrooms? Be bad news for Sussex Water. They can't supply water to one bathroom, never mind 16. Can you imagine? 
Santa Barbara in California, beautiful part of the world. Um, I can't imagine it's very green, this house. You know, these are people who want to save the planet. Uh, they fly around in private jets. They drive around in Cadillac Escalades and they live in a £15 million mansion, which has 16 bathrooms. I don't think we'll be taking any advice from them on saving the planet anytime soon, do you? Eco-plankery at its finest. Let's talk to somebody sensible uh, and get this show on the road. Benjamin Locknane, of course, is from Migration Watch. Benjamin, very good morning to you. Morning. Thanks very much for joining us, Benjamin. Now, first of all, can I ask, uh, because we're trying to get Pretty Patel uh, to basically sort of streamline the asylum-seeking uh, business and the business of asylum-seeking, um, why does it take so long at the moment to come here to apply for asylum and to get rejected? It seems to take years. Well, one of the reasons is actually the backlog. There's such a sheer volume of applications that it's impossible for them to get through them all quickly enough to um, to actually process people. There's about 150,000 uh, active asylum claimants at the moment, which is uh, more than double the current British army. Mm. Uh, it's a, a huge amount of people. Um, but this is presumably one of the reasons why Boris uh, wanted an amnesty last year, because then you clear the backlog start of a clean slate but obviously that's a terrifically irresponsible policy to simply say yes let every single person who is claiming asylum have it and then start fresh uh, and, you know even if you did do that it would uh, it, you know it wouldn't solve the issue because then you incentivize people coming because you say if you come here all you have to do is you you, you know sit sit pretty and then eventually You'll, uh, you'll be given amnesty. Yeah, so, exactly right. No and matter that, who you are. <laughs> and that seems to be part of the problem. She's trying to now, uh, Priti Patel, streamline that process. Because, I mean, I've, I've been telling the story of one particular individual uh, who came to apparently Scotland when he was age 12 from Afghanistan. Um, he had um, applied for an application to remain as an asylum seeker. Uh, but it was uh, he was 24 but before they actually rejected it. Yeah, it's um, it, it's a total scandal. And then, you know, even if you are rejected, less than half the people who are rejected actually leave the country, uh, whether of their own accord or by being removed. So mm. it doesn't really matter if you don't get don't you know don't get given uh, amnesty or rather given asylum because you don't get removed, and then you can just submit another application on different grounds. So you can turn around, you know, after years and years of being in this country waiting for your application to be processed. And then when you're rejected, you can say, oh, actually, now I'm claiming asylum for this other reason that I've just thought up. Right. And then you get a few more years in the country. And presumably this is all as a result of the asylum kind of laws which were brought in as a result of our membership of the European Union. Because looking at these Home Office figures that I've got here, uh, in which they say the number of people granted protection, resettlement or an alternative form of leave. And what that tells me is that they've got all sorts of different ways of applying. As you say, they've got asylum, humanitarian protection, discretionary leave, UASC leave uh, and other resettlement grants so it seems like there's at least five different ways uh, of possibly remaining here yeah well it's a it's a system which is designed to be so complex and uh, so difficult to navigate that a, a number of very skillful lawyers can uh, run rings around you know the home office and the people who are g- genuinely trying to do their job a lot of good people in the government are trying to do their job trying to remove um, people who have no rights to be here but the way that the law is structured at the moment is far too complex, um, leaves far too many loopholes and is so open to abuse that it is being abused. Yes. You know, we can't be surprised if the law is open to abuse and then people abuse it. Well, exactly right. And I was surprised yesterday when I got the first batch of information from the Home Office in which it was revealed that the top four countries uh, in asylum applications are Iran, Albania, Iraq and Pakistan. Now, while you might say Iran and Iraq are not particularly pleasant places to live, uh, Pakistan uh, is certainly not at war, neither is Albania. Um, And it seems to me that this nonsense that gets spouted by the lefties of this world uh, and the Gary Linekers of this world about, oh, we must be very sorry for these desperate people fleeing war zones. They're not fleeing war zones. I mean, forget about the fact they're coming from France. Even their original countries are not at war. Well, absolutely. And we need to make a, a distinction between genuine refugees and these people who are posing as refugees in order to take, a, a, you know, take, a, take advantage of our great generosity as a nation. We've got a great history of giving asylum to people who are genuine refugees who really do genuinely need it. Uh, but our kindness should not be mistaken for weakness. We should not be in a position where people are coming here and going, they're a soft touch, we can go in, we can, you know, milk their 
you know system and and uh, you know be put up in four star hotels and looked after and catered to and spend years there going through their system and then when we're rejected we won't leave anyway we'll just put in another application we'll stay then we'll abuse the system yeah. that is not the same thing as genuine refugees i mean for example the the afghan translators who during the war helped our soldiers to navigate a very treacherous and difficult um terrain who now are at genuine threat of being killed because they are seen in their country as traitors. These are the sorts of people who will spend years in limbo, in purgatory of the system, because of the sheer volume of false claimants that there are, making the system impossible to get through for genuine refugees. Mm. And the number of genuine refugees are a lot lot lower than the number of people claiming asylum in this country at the Absolutely moment. right. Because interestingly, again, I'm going to refer to these figures that I've got. Uh, the East Midlands, for example, UK region, up to the year ending March 2020, uh, by far and away the biggest number of people sent to that, that region was were from Iraq, the next up from Iran, then Albania, then Pakistan, then China. And then they've got a category called Other. I'm not quite sure what that would be um, because they do categorise most countries as countries. So I presume Other um, would be, I don't know what they would be stateless people uh, i'd actually presume it's people who they don't know where they're from they don't have any documents and they are not compliant they're not saying where they're from uh, there's you know plenty of people i'm sure you saw the video of people throwing their mm. uh, identification into the water as they're coming over i mean yeah. you know there is a real problem at the moment of people who are uh, evasive they aren't they aren't compliant they don't want to help their own asylum claims right. because they are here largely to uh, to drag it out as long as possible and to continue to be able to claim asylum in this country. Um, you well, know, surely it's, if you, uh, if you refuse to cooperate with the authorities and refuse to say where you're from, then how do the authorities know that you're fleeing a war zone? Well, exactly. I mean, this is one of the problems. You know, we should have a lot more uh, of, a, of an onus on the people who are claiming asylum to prove where they're from yeah. and to prove the, the, the situation they're coming from. Because when it comes down to it, fundamentally, we can't just allow anyone into this country if they come over and say, you know, oh, I claim asylum and it's on you to prove that I'm, a, I'm, I'm an asylum. So yes. that's that's entirely the wrong, wrong way around. Um, but the government fundamentally, when it comes down to it, is far too weak to do anything about this. They know full well what's going on. They know full well, you know, the run around the sort of, you know, uh, the corruption and the uh, manipulation of the system. They know what's going on, but they're too weak to do anything about it. And the Conservative Party is no longer the party of law and order. Mm. They can no longer claim to be the party of law and order while such rampant abuse of the system is going on under their government. You know, they've been in power, including the coalition, for 10 years now. Yeah. Um, you know, they've had a majority for five years and they've had an 80-seat majority for, you know, what about nine months now? They've got absolutely no excuse. Um, and, you know, Boris likes to think of himself as a big sort of Churchillian figure. Uh, but, you know, Churchill said he prefers... George Orr to war, war. Well, it seems Boris prefers George Orr to law, law. Yeah. He uh, he is much rather talk and do the PR campaigns and go out there and give these great rousing speeches about how he's uh, how he's you know doing everything that the people want. But he's not actually doing any of it. He's he's just talking. He's there for the photo shoots and the uh, you know the big speeches. But he's not there when it comes down to it. He's not there there when it's a, a legal issue when we need to get rid of laws which promote abuse when we need to withdraw from international agreements which put a, a ridiculous amount of um, expectation on us to uh, take in migrants as soon as they enter into the English Channel. You know, where is he when it comes down to actually doing the things that need to be done? Well, that's a very good question, because one of the things that, that we put to the Home Office and we asked the Home Office as far as, um, you know, the asylum seekers who arrive and we see more arriving today, um, you know, why are they not being tested for COVID-19? To which they said, uh, that's a decision for the NHS. Well, I'm sorry, if you're coming in through a border, uh, which is actually policed by the border force, then surely if you're unknown and surely if you are uh, an immigrant who is coming illegally, the first thing they should do is test you for COVID-19. Well, back in April, the Guardian reported that, um, you know, there was this huge problem in the Calais camp uh, with coronavirus. And they said that they expected half the camp to be infected within a month. Now, that was back in April. Uh, we're now into August. So if half of the people were expected to be infected by the middle of May, then I wonder how many of the people who are coming over now will be infected. If we are to trust the uh, the Guardian um, on on that claim. Uh, now, I might be called cynical for saying that the, uh, the Guardian probably, uh, you know, exaggerated considerably the threat in order to 
promote sympathy mm. to you know sort of push the agenda but um even if you know take them at their word if that's the case we should at least be testing people i mean not just not letting them in but at least just testing people who, who you know are coming in from what is supposedly a hotbed of the most deadly pandemic that we've seen mm. uh, supposedly in years mm. Well, that's exactly right. And as far as Pretty Patel's attempts to uh, sort of move this on and, and to, to at least look as if something is being done, uh, the French are saying that uh, to Chris Philp that basically they will uh, work harder to stop so many boats getting put in the water in the first place. But also, if she can speed up this asylum process, that doesn't necessarily change anything because at the moment, if you get to turn down for asylum, you get to repeal and you get to hang around for a few more years, don't you? Yeah, it's uh, the, it's not about speeding anything up. It's about changing the law. Yeah. Currently, the law is not fit for purpose. We need a, a, a over, total overhaul, not only of our immigration system at large, but certainly of our asylum system, which is so open to abuse and manipulation. But the problem is, when it really comes down to it, the government don't actually need to do anything because the people who care about this issue, the voters who care about this issue, who else are they going to be able to vote for? What protests do they have against this? When it comes down to it, they either vote for the Conservatives who say they'll do something mm. or they vote for Labour who don't even say they'll do anything or they vote for the Lib Dems who say they're going to do even worse and they are very proud of saying how much worse they're going to do uh, a, a job of this. So really, there is no opposition in this country whatsoever. I mean, you know, we've got, of course, um, Nigel Farage has been very vocal about this. He's been very hot on this issue. He's done a very good job. But fundamentally, when it comes down to it, the leader of the opposition is Keir Starmer. And where is he to be seen? He's well, not opposing anything. No. I mean, Keir Starmer yesterday was banging on about A-levels and talking outside of Parliament as if, you know, this was suddenly something that he had found uh, to be a great uh, topic of national interest, which I'm afraid it isn't. You know, the A-levels are only really of interest to people doing their A-levels. And the A-level business is only of interest to schools and teachers and all the rest of it. And it doesn't really matter a jot to most people in this country. But most people in this country would like to see uh, this being clamped down upon and the illegal migrant business uh, actually being stopped because so many people are making so much money out of it. We've got the ridiculous um, sort of situation where I think the shadow Home Secretary for the Labour Party was basically saying uh, that uh, well, you know the, the government should show more compassion. Well, as we've pointed out all week, there's no point in showing compassion to organised crime uh, and organised criminals who are making millions every single time anybody gets in a, in a, in a dinghy. Yeah, well, there's people making millions sometimes in, in the course of one day. I mean, probably about 20, 30 million has mm. gone through uh, the channel this summer. And I think I said the other day to um, to Julia uh, when I was on her show that uh, a lot of this is not going to be pure profit. Where is that money going? Why yeah. aren't we investigating how that money moves around? Why aren't we investigating where the wheels are being greased in order to keep this influx flowing? Because when it comes down to it, there are a lot of people who are employed on both their coast and on ours to stop these sorts of things happening. Why is that system not operating properly? Is it something to do with the way that the money's flowing throughout these, you know, throughout this system? If not, then it's, you know, it's something where, where the government needs to say, OK, clearly our system's not fit for purpose. And clearly your government, sorry, your, the, the, the French system is not fit for purpose either. But it might actually be a lot to do with corruption mm. and there's a lot of money this is big money business so you know where there's money follow it you know there's often uh, a lot of corruption in in things which are profitable but uh, you know when it comes down to it really fundamentally we have no alternative we have to put pressure on the government because who else are we going to vote in to deal with this you know we'll only get we'll only get worse later on down the line um but boris johnson is not stepping up pretty Patel, you know she's saying the right things but she's not delivering on them that might be because she doesn't have enough support in in the cabinet or from the government or it might be because she's not competent you know i when it comes down to it i really hope she is competent i really hope she is committed to solving this issue because we need good people in government to prevent these things from happening but at the moment they're continuing they keep going on so we can only come to the conclusion that they're either not competent or they're not willing yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Benjamin, great to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Benjamin Lochlane uh, from Migration Watch UK. Uh, this government needs to get to grips with this. We've been talking about it now for a long time. We're hearing the right noises, but what we need to see are the right actions. What we don't need to see uh, is the Shadow Home Secretary, a bloke by the name of Nick Thomas Simmons, who I've never heard of uh, until today, who is apparently accusing Priti Patel of a shameful bid to militarise a humanitarian crisis. And he's accused of being devoid of compassion. Uh, there's that lefty virtue signalling uh, sound coming out of the squeaky part of the Labour Party benches. 
She's not lacking in compassion. She's the Home Secretary. You don't have to have compassion to be the Home Secretary. You just have to have the will uh, and the means to make laws and to make sure those laws are carried out. And right now, there are lots of people breaking the laws of this country because they are coming here illegally. But unfortunately, we give them an excuse to stay here illegally because of the law. There's something very wrong and it needs to be sorted out right now. Apparently, basically, anybody who comes here can stay here for as long as they like, particularly if they are unable to leave the UK because it might be for reasons outside of their control. Well, can you imagine? It's like somebody saying to you, look, the pub's shut. Uh, Can you leave, please? No, I'm sorry. I'm not able to leave uh, due to something which is beyond my control. Now, in any pub situation, you get thrown out on your backside. In Britain, you get to stay in the pub. That's the problem. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. You might already know what a woozle actually is, but uh, I must admit, uh, not that many people that I've spoken to know what a woozle is. But let us talk to Helen Dale. Uh, we spoke to her last week for the first time. She's an author, she's an academic, she's a lawyer, uh, but she is also a very interesting woman uh, who likes to talk about things that some people don't like to talk about. Helen, a very good uh, morning to you. Welcome back. Morning, Mike. How are you? Very well indeed. I hope you're, you're surviving the heat. You'll be used to the heat coming from Australia, I suppose, so it's not too bad. Uh, it's interesting because 35 degrees here is really unpleasant yes. in a way that it isn't in Australia mm. because Australians have properly designed houses <laughs> for this, so they're made of wood. I mean, the, the, the state that I come from in Australia, Queensland, the houses are overwhelmingly made of wood. If made of brick, it's cavity brick, so there's air in between the, the bricks, yes. which acts like a vacuum. Uh, they have a, a whirly gig on the roof to suck the hot air out mm. um, and they're often particularly bedrooms so people can sleep they're often air conditioned right and then you've got australians also if even if they don't have the air conditioning inevitably there's a there's a swimming pool yes yeah so, we, just, we just haven't got it right in this country at all it's the same problem here with the terrible heat mm. that you get when London has two inches of snow yes. and the entire city stops while everybody up in Edinburgh and Glasgow, because they get that every year, just sits there and goes, oh, this is what you do. Yeah, right. But this is the difference between Scotland, where it nearly always snows in the winter, and England or London, especially where it doesn't. And it's the same with this very, very high heat. People in 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 Brisbane, where I went to high school and university, um, are just used to this kind of heat in the summer and their houses... Mm are designed to cope with it. Yes. I mean, unfortunately, it leads one to the conclusion that nothing really works properly here. And given the opportunity, there'll be some jobs worth to make something actually worse than it should be. I mean, we're talking (laughs) later. But it already is. Well, I know. Yeah, we're talking later about water companies that can't manage to supply any water. But, you know, that's for another another day. Uh, Fascinating piece in in The Critic, which uh, I read earlier this week. Um, Are you reviewing a book called Cynical Theories, where you talk about... That's the critic, by the way. Yes, okay. Yeah, uh, for anyone who, who wants to find it, I'll, I'll, I'll tweet this piece out again as well. But it's a, a book yes. called Cynical Theories by Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay. And it's you um, talking about um, what I suppose is a modern day phenomena of people sort of basically walking around in circles, not getting anywhere for all sorts of reasons. Tell us about it. Well, I mean, this is the book. I mean, this is a reviewer's copy. So obviously when you buy it, it will be in hardback and a lot nicer. Yes. Um, it, 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 when I got it, it's got typos and no index, which is what happens if you do professional book reviewing. Yes. Uh, but what it is, is an attempt, a very good one, to explain in a fairly dispassionate and quite generous way by these two people who are proper academics they're not ex-academics like me Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay Helen Pluckrose uh, medievalist at Queen Mary University of London and actually withdrew from her doctorate about halfway through because she was fed up with all of this postmodern nonsense Mm. Uh, James Lindsay is an academic, although once again, he has also left, but he completed his PhD. He's a mathematical physicist um, from the United States. And both of them became very alarmed by what was happening in the in the academy, coming from very different intellectual traditions. So like Matt, James encountered all this silly decolonized math stuff. And uh, uh, Helen was being told to use Foucault when she was trying to write about you know, medieval writing um religious writing by by and for women mm. 
this is completely pointless. You know what? The, and it doesn't illuminate anything, and it tells you nothing about the Middle Ages or right. how people lived or it or this kind of thing. And well, actual facts, you mean? Yeah, and no actual facts. Yeah, just fact-free speculation mm. about things that were nonsense. And both of them became increasingly alarmed by this, and they wrote. They did what people who are academics who can write nicely, which is rel a relatively rare combination. They wrote articles for newspapers and magazines and you know, and James, obviously, because he's American, focusing on the US press and Helen, because she's British, you know, she was writing for like the New Statesman and, and the Spectator and various other outlets about these issues. And they just weren't getting anywhere. Mm. And so they did two things. The first thing they did was they perpetrated along with another chap in the United States who's drop, dropped out for the purposes of this book, an extraordinary hoax, uh, which is sometimes called the SoCal Squared hoax. Right. And basically what it was is because they knew all this stuff, because they'd been force-fed force it at university, they pretended to be different people. They didn't use their own names or otherwise or, and their own academic institutions or they'd be caught. Uh, they submitted a number of papers to all the high impact journals in what they came to describe as grievance studies, which right. is this whole academic thing that uh, everything is going wrong with the world and all you should do is just sit around and moan about it. You know, I mean, my mother used to call it the moaning industrial complex mm. before she died, but Helen and James call it call it grievance studies. And because they, they'd done their homework, um, large numbers of these papers were accepted, a significant number were published. Um, it was all going along very well. They were getting to the point where probably nearly all of them would have been accepted. But of course, the Wall Street Journal in America got wind of who one of them was, right. and then started to investigate. And basically, they had to bring the, the the hoax to an end because otherwise the Wall Street Journal said if you don't uh, we will blow the whistle on mm. you instead of you blowing the whistle on yourselves and that caused an enormous storm of controversy I actually covered that story as a story for the Australian the Australia's main national daily that I write for sometimes and they, the other thing they did because they wanted to punch a hole in the pretensions of this nonsense um, was they came to realise, and I mean, I did a version of this, but with post-colonialism 25 years ago with my first novel, and I did say to, to, to Helen privately, and she, she won't dispute that I said this, perpetrating a hoax on idiots, yes, it wraps them in an omelette and it makes everybody laugh at them, but it doesn't make them your friend and it doesn't teach them anything. Mm. And so they got a very nasty response from a lot of people who thought that their entire academic discipline had been hung out to dry, basically. Well, that's the problem, isn't and it, it with had, a lot of these people? Been. But that's the problem with a lot. Been. But that's the problem with a lot of these people because they don't wish to be too rigorous in their examination mm. of what you're saying, as long as you're saying what they agree with. Whereas if yes, you were writing well, something, well, a... whereas if you were writing something they disagreed with, that would be an entirely different kettle of fish, wouldn't it? Well, yes, yeah, so this was part of the point of the hoax, that it was only possible to get papers that agreed published. And if you attempted to get papers that disagreed published, then you got nowhere and you just got blanked. Go, what, what, what's referred to as ghosted, you know, mm. people wouldn't even respond to, to, to submissions. Right. So they then set about, well, two of them did, after one, the, one of the, the three hoaxes dropped out, um, he, he's doing other stuff. I mean, he's still very supportive of them. His name's Peter Bogosian, but he wasn't involved in this. The two of them wrote this book. And the reason I use the woozle image, woozles are in Winnie the Pooh. They're right. an imaginary creature in Winnie the Pooh. And basically what happened uh, in, in the Winnie the Pooh story is that Peglet and Pooh Bear start following a set of tracks around a tree in the snow. And they think they're looking for a woozle Oh, we're going to find a woozle. This is really cool. And they get more and more and more confused and more and more annoyed and frustrated until eventually Christopher Robin comes along and points out, um, you're following your own tracks around the same tree, you pair of silly billies. Right. And by the way, woozles don't exist. And there's a very, the critic actually put a rather cute little cartoon in of from the, the original um, Winnie the Pooh stories yes. House at Pooh, from House at Pooh Corner. And anyway, for a long time, I mean, I first heard this in the 90s when I first started having involvement with think tanks. Um, the woozle effect has been 
a phrase used amongst people who develop policy, that is, so individuals who take academic research and then have to investigate the policy implications of that academic research in the event that it is legislatively enacted. Now, yeah. this is obviously something that can easily go wrong. We've all seen it happen in a number of countries across the world with coronavirus. Well, it's I was going to say, I mean, it sounds to me, the, woos- the whole woozle it, uh, phenomenon sounds like something that uh, an yes. academic scientist uh, would do a, a, a model on, because all this modelling that we seem obsessed with well, uh, yes, is all is based, on, based on yeah, based on something that doesn't exist. We saw it most recently mm. uh, with the uh, A-level results and with the education system in this country, uh, but we've also seen it uh, with these modelling uh, um, uh, ridiculousness that come out of, coming, out, coming out of Downing Street. Well, yes. And so this is quite a serious problem across the board in policy and policy wonks. Wonk world has always talked about the woozle effect. And the woozle effect in wonk world is when you get academic research that isn't rigorous and information, alleged information that exists in this academic research is taken as factual and then it finishes up policy is then built on the back of something that is allegedly true that if you go back and dig into it turns out not to be true for a variety of reasons whether it's bad research whether the scholar hasn't done their sums right whether it doesn't replicate which means it's uh, we've talked about the the replication crisis there's been books there's one a new one out by Stuart Ritchie about the the, uh, the replication crisis and it's called science fictions and he talks about how basically entire disciplines have been burnt to the ground as a result of this but it took decades for people to find out about it and often the initial breach was made by people who were in my position who were working either for a politician or for a think tank who would then go back and investigate the data sets and go but hang on that's not true hmm. now but do you suspect effect- but do you suspect Helen, as I do, that a lot of these assumptions and a lot of these kind of inventions are done purely and simply because they know that's what they need to do in order to get to the end bit, which is where they want to be. Um, So they invent something which kind of justifies them getting there, if you know what I mean. Well, this is what has certainly happened with the progress of what what Pluckrose and Lindsay call grievance studies yeah. or all these various studies. That's certainly a case. It's it's completely teleological. And they go around and engage in what is described as policy-based evidence, which is they've got a policy they want to implement. Mm. And so they go and cherry pick evidence to support their policy, which, of course, is not the way to do things. So that's certainly what is happening with uh all of this critical race theory, the assumption that any gap in achievement between men and women, either academically or in the workforce, must be as a result of sexism. The assumption that policing, uh, disproportionate policing procedures directed against black people must be entirely as a result of racism. That's classic woozle thinking. Yes. Well, you mentioned the the gender pay gap, which is one one of the great shibboleths, isn't it? Yeah, yes, it is. I mean, that's a classic. It's a woo, it's a classic woozle factlet. There's all this policy. I mean, it's worse when it comes from Labour. But you've had when Theresa May was prime minister, you had the Tories buying into it as well. Mm. And it's classic woozle. It's that there is a gender pay gap because of sexism. And as soon as you drill into the data, which various organisations have done, often think tanks, they can be left or right wing think tanks. When I first encountered labour market economics and I encountered the gender pay gap, my tutor was a socialist. Bad luck. But by the same, but by the same token, he was an honest socialist. Blimey. So he said, no, this exists not because of sexism, but because women leave the workforce to have children. They make a choice. And they often want to leave the workforce to have children for longer mm. than would otherwise be the case. Uh, and they return to the workforce under sufferance and no. then don't work as hard. And so then you get the divergence. And he also, I mean, I remember he doing this big graph pr- presenting his data. And if women didn't have children, then the gap was negligible. Right. And sometimes if the woman didn't have children and she'd done a lot of maths at high school and at university, she finished up ahead of men on average, you know, once you sorted the data into yeah. groups. So this is the virtue of it doesn't matter what politics your tutors at university have. They have to be honest people who care about the truth. 
Well, they they, and, they should be, but I'm, I'm yeah, worried. I do and, worry sometimes and the, that in... and the virtue and the virtue of, of cynical theories is that it points out where you've got very large numbers of people, mainly in the humanities, but it started to cross over into the social sciences and even into some areas of STEM, where uh, STEM and law, where you would hope that you would keep it out of. It's even started to interpenetrate in there, mm. where people have a view about why things happen in the world and then they go around and they cherry pick the evidence. This is actually worse than what people like Neil Ferguson or Public Health England were doing. Public Health England and Neil Ferguson and their models and that kind of thing, they have made mistakes. They have made errors. They have given bad advice and all of these things. You know, These things are true. But the actual basic information about the way coronavirus has spread as as compared to say the way flu spread and so on and so forth all of that was actually accurate they just got it wrong well it was but the problem is is that they were painted as the experts and you know when you are painted as an expert there isn't really any room for getting it wrong nobody said this "This could be wrong this is our estimation this is what we think it we were told this is the science Sit down, shut up. This is very, very dangerous. Yes, and that's the problem. It seems to me uh, that we are making a massive mistake uh, in in current sort of modern thinking that we're trusting scientists when all they've really got is a model. They don't have anything other than that. And it's actually, I mean, there's this joke that always goes around amongst. I mean, the discipline that first really ran into troubles with this, with the global financial crisis, uh, economists use this quip. Prediction is difficult, especially about the future. <laughs> I mean, and a little bit more, uh, Helen and James in their book, in Cynical Theories, talk about epistemic modesty, mm. having a bit of modesty about what is knowable and what you can know, and being very thorough and rigorous about how you investigate things would actually improve a lot of this. But it wouldn't improve the problems that are identified in cynical theories because you've got a very large number of academics, and this is why they were so very angry with Helen and James and Peter Goshen when he was involved when they perpetrated the hoax, because they're not interested in truth because they don't believe it's possible to reach the truth. So it's a radical scepticism that objective truth is attainable or anything close to objective truths is attainable. So they're actually thinking about the world in a completely different way, in a, in a way that's completely dysfunctional. It's closer, and, and Pluckrose and Lindsay make a pretty good argument for this, that's actually closer to the way theology works. Yeah. You know, if you went and talked to uh, particularly a, a conservative evangelical Christian or a conservative Muslim, um, the thinking that where you go around and you cherry pick things that seem to support your view is much, much commoner amongst people from conservative religious traditions. And it tends to lead to the same place. Yeah. I mean, one of the chapters in, in cynical theories talks about transgender ideology, for example, and the arguments that are made are as pseudoscientific as creationism. Yeah, and you, know, you, could, there, there you could argue as well that the, the sort of the cult-like nature of some people who uh, would now call themselves rejoiners of the European Union, the, the people who were the sort of staunchest Remainers and, and the people who are these climate change fanatics. You know, they are fanatics. These people are uh, religious in their belief system, yes, uh, which, it, is, which because, is not really has... based on anything other than their belief system. Well, we've had to learn over centuries that it's actually very dangerous to build entire social structures, particularly legal systems, on things that aren't true. Um, they're very, very destructive of civilization. I mean, this is what fed into the wars of religion originally. You know, you had people with completely incompatible worldviews. And it looks really trivial to modern people because we're sort of going, well, does it really matter if Christ's body and blood actually turns, you know, the wine turns into Christ's body and blood? Why does this matter? Well, it mattered to people in the 16th century and they fought bloody wars over it. Yes. You know, the same way that, you know, you, uh, I'm sorry to pick on one of your other presenters that you get sometimes, but Calvin Robinson is the wrong, is being told, despite his obvious appearance, he has hair like Jimi Hendrix, for goodness sake. I mean, he's being told he's not properly black. Yeah. Because he doesn't parrot the family the accepted political line on these things you know so you're literally dealing with people who are, who are just happy to wave away actual things that are true right like what calvin robinson looks like 
that kind of thing. Oh, I know. It is crazy. But also it's a ridiculousness that kind of... It's the same as the argument we're going to have now about um, the illegal migrant boats that are coming over, where, you know, everybody who is coming on one of those boats is considered to be by the left and by the virtue signalers, uh, you know, some kind of desperate, horrible, downtrodden, war-torn individual uh, who's done everything they can to, to, to get to a better place in the world. You know, they're not allowed to be criminal. They're not allowed to be in any way hooked up with organised crime. They're not allowed to or, be... Uh, or they don't want to stay in France because yeah, in France exactly they right. will make you learn French and you're not allowed to do a huge amount of no, your quite. religion in public. Yes, well, but do tell us, too. Do tell us, because we're running out of time, about how Australia dealt with all of this and how they managed well, okay. to, to get from point A to point B? The broad headline thing to remember is Australia is still one of the most pro-immigration countries in the world. Australia's immigration policy is founded on the idea, though, that in order for immigration and refugee to be admitted to the country and accepted as members of the political and cultural community of Australia, Mm. immigration broadly needs to have electoral consent. It needs the consent of the electorate. Now, one of the reasons why immigration declined as an issue after the 2016 referendum was because a good part of that vote, not all of it, but a decent part of that vote was individuals who wanted to bring immigration back under electoral control. And so they thought we have cast that ballot, that's been achieved, and the salience of immigration trickle dropped Mm. quite considerably because people thought it was being brought back under under the control of the electorate. Now, this has been known in Australia since 1992, when mandatory detention was first introduced by the Keating Labor government. Paul Keating was the prime minister at the time. Um, He'd previously been treasurer, which is the Australian equivalent of chancellor. And then, like Gordon Brown, he took over from a popular prime minister, Bob Hawke, the way Brown took over from Tony Blair. And the Mm. process was actually quite similar. Now, he introduced mandatory detention, that mandatory detention that can be indefinite. Um, In Australia, they're not called asylum seekers, they're called unlawful arrivals. That sounds a bit more truthful. And there are two policy ideas that have existed for a very long time in Australia, going right back to 1945. It's just Keating brought them all together in a single piece of legislation. And there's been tinkering since, but it's mainly the way Paul Keating thought about this is that you radically cut the numbers of low-skill or trades-qualified immigrants in order to protect the bottom fifth of the labour market. Now, a labour government in Australia has to do this because historically Australia's trade unions are very powerful. And Australian trade unionism isn't based on voluntarism like it was here with you had that cosy arrangement between Callaghan or Wilson and the unions. In Australia, it's enacted into law and built into the Constitution. Mm. So it's very difficult for the party of Labor to become excessively pro-immigrant because it has to protect that union vote. So that's the first part of it. The other part is to engage in such a way with both immigration and refugees so that in the process of protecting the people at the bottom of Australia's labour market is to accept only the most able from everywhere. And because lots of people want to come to Australia, that's how the point system works, because it's a very desirable location to immigrate. So it's a point system based on what you can do rather than where you're coming from. But the point is, with refugees, through a series of of enactments that go back to 1992, is that whilst Australia takes many refugees, it effectively applies the same inner logic that it does to immigration to refugees. So since 1945, but particularly since 1966, which was the formal end of the White Australia policy, uh, the... Australian governments of all stripes have focused intensely on taking immigrants who are known, the expression that economic historians use is market dominant minorities. That is people who are being picked on often in a racist way, but not always in their countries of origin because they've got high human capital, so that means they're educated, they're economically successful and they're economically independent. Now, they might have nothing when Australia took very large numbers of Vietnamese after the fall of Saigon in 1975. These people came 
in their clothes and that was it. Yeah. They had nothing else. But they were market a market dominant minority. They were from a small, often from a small ethnic group, but not always. Sometimes it was just because they were French speakers from Vietnam who were market dominant minorities. Now, Labour in Australia wanted to be the party of the unions and also wanted to be the party of anti-racism. Now, this created all sorts of difficulties for Labour because you had a situation where it had to protect the bottom of the labour market. It wanted to bring in skilled immigrants because they do actually add value to the economy. But by the same token, market dominant minorities with very few exceptions, and that exception now no longer exists, market dominant minorities vote Tory. It sounds like it sounds like it sounds like we'll need to come back to this, Helen, because we're running out. We're, we've actually run out of time. But listen, uh, thank you for that. We shall we shall take that on board because uh, we'll be probably talking about this again. I'm sure uh, coming up very very shortly. But uh, it seems as though the Australian model is a lot more sophisticated than the British model, which appears to be that uh, basically anybody can come, uh, anybody can apply for asylum, and even if you don't get asylum, you can stay here anyway. We'll take some more of your calls on that as well. Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand. Thanks to Helen Dale, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. It has been incredibly hot this week, though, I have to say. I mean, my flat in London, I know that nobody really cares and I don't expect to get any sympathy whatsoever because everybody's got their own problems. But it is so hot right now, I think you could probably fry an egg uh, on the floor uh, because once it heats up, it just doesn't cool down. And even if the rest rest of the the, the atmosphere outside of the place cools down, it takes a good two or three days for all that to happen. And I'm sure there'll be plenty of you uh, who would sympathise, at least with me, uh, when you say it has been quite difficult to sleep without covering yourself in wet towels and all sorts of other uh, various things. Fans, air conditioning units. Let's talk now, though, to Jim Dale, meteorologist at British Weather Services and author of Weather or Not, the Personal and Commercial Impacts of Weather and Climate. Jim, a very good morning to you. Welcome. And good morning to you, Mike. So I'm hearing that uh, depending on which part of the world you're in, it could well be um, breaking, uh, it could well be raining, it could well be thundering, or it could well be even flooding at the moment. Well, I'm speaking to you from Buckinghamshire, uh, deepest rural Buckinghamshire. Yes. You can probably see by the background. Looks lovely. Yeah, a little bit of wind. And it actually feels quite fresh out here, but you're mm. right. It's a little bit of everything. It's a, it's a real mixture. Uh, a little bit of tropicalness, then the downpours. I think the temperatures, the high temperatures, they come with the... Uh, the thunderstorms rather they come with the temperature so once we get to the tropical heights expect the tropical downpours and that's exactly what we've been seeing in this last 48 hours right and according to a piece of the times this morning uh, we've experienced our longest stretch of temperatures above 34 degrees centigrade since the 60s what's yeah, that all about since records properly started to begin begin so uh, what it's all about is somewhere in the UK has got to 34 degrees. It's normally the London area where you live, or rather Heathrow, the concrete jungle. It's, it's normally that area or into Kent. And it's reached it on six consecutive days, which is highly unusual. It's more like we're living in the West Indies. Uh, so very, very tropical. Just need a couple of drinks and everything else that, go, that goes with it. <laughs> Swimming pool would be nice. Yeah, of course. But, I mean, the thing is, um, when was it that hot in the 60s, though? Because, you know, we were always told, oh, my goodness me, the world's hotting up. Everything's getting much hotter and much colder. But if it was this hot in the 60s... Do you know what? I, I just about relent to the 60s as a young boy. I, I can't remember the, the heat. I can't remember those times without looking at the records. I'm not sure it was. I think mm. this has been sort of... Uh, it was from that date we started to record these these type, types of temperatures. So maybe we got there once. But I can remember the 60s being cold in actual fact, 62, 63 winters and all the rest of it. This field behind me was covered in snow. I remember trudging, trudging through it on another occasion in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the 90s. So it's not all one way. Um, no, no. I mean, I remember there being a lot of snow when I was growing up in the 60s as well um, in London specifically. And now you very rarely see any snow at all. That doesn't mean we're not going to see it again, by the way. Uh, well, I wish we did. I love snow. Yeah, so do I. But global warming does not necessarily mean a lack of a winter. If the Arctic uh, vortex moves slightly, uh, then it, then we can be affected by that, much as the USA can be affected. Same sort of thing where you get two or three weeks of blizzardy conditions. It didn't happen that long ago here. So it can, it can certainly happen again. It feels refreshing talking about snow and all this heat, doesn't it? Well, do you know, it's one of those things I always say to people, that when it's this hot, you can't actually imagine being cold. You forget your body and your brain kind of forgets what it's like to be cold, doesn't it? Well, I, I can probably bring in my book, if I may, on this one. Please do. 
within the book, here we go, uh, within this particular book, uh, whether or not, um, it's a new book, by the way, there is a, there is a chapter on uh, health and well-being. And health and well-being are the, are the number one starting all of this. People have felt, can I say, under the weather a little bit. I yeah. know it's enjoyable for the most part. But when it gets very humid, uh, closeness and all the rest of it, and then you get the thunderstorms coming along and they scare people to death, well, it kind of changes a little bit. And this book sort of references itself to how to stay safe in such weathers, not just thunderstorms and lightning, which is very apparent, but, but also other, other forms of severe weather, such as tornadoes, uh, wildfires, uh, hurricanes and avalanches, that mm. type of thing. Right. So, well, I mean, I'm, I think it's very true to say that people in this weather get kind of cranky because unless you've got air conditioning, you're waking up in the middle of the night more often than you would otherwise be doing. You're not really sleeping through, so you're inevitably a bit more tired. You know, everything feels like more of an effort. Yeah, it does because we, we our bodies are sort of controlled to around 37 degrees. As soon as we get a little bit warmer than that, hotter than that, you might say, if we don't cool ourselves down in the very many ways that, that's possible, which the, the number one is hydration, mm. if you don't do that, your moods are going to swing big style. Uh, you're not going to operate in the same way. And people, you know, hotheads is, is, came about, that, that terminology of hotheads came about, not, not for any other reason than when you get into hot weather, you tend to go in that direction. You get angry more, more quickly. You lose your temper. It's all of these sort of things that we don't control ourselves very well mm. when we get extremes of weather. And really and truly, as we go forward and we talk about climate change, it's something we really need to have to think about. And if not us, then certainly the, the doctors and nurses, hospitals and things like that, that they get on top of it. But we all have to, in this changing environment of climate change, we have to, uh, we have to change and adapt. We have to adapt. Um, and if we don't adapt, then we're going to suffer. Yes, well, I mean, I wish somebody would put some more air conditioning into all of the various places that I go, and that would be a good start for adapting, as far as I'm concerned. You know what? We're not used to that in Britain. It's one of those things. It's, it's big style in the, Uni in, in the United States, big style in, uh, in uh, Asia. And, but here, my God, if we look if you find it. A few shops, yeah, that's okay. That's okay. That's a good reason to go into shops, isn't it? Well, it really is, but unfortunately not enough of them have got it. But uh, thank Jim, thanks very much indeed. I think somebody was just saying good morning to you there as they were walking past, which may make itself uh, onto the Perry Rewards. You never know. We'll get those tomorrow, of course. Jim Dale from British Weather Services telling us what uh, the weather is likely to be doing because uh, it's still very, very hot out there. Uh, if you're out driving around uh, in a van, uh, I hope you've got air conditioning. If you're in a taxi, I hope you've got air conditioning. If you're in a car, I hope the same thing. Uh, obviously, if you're a cyclist, you won't have air conditioning. Uh, you'll be too busy frothing at the mouth and shouting at people. People, uh, to do anything else talk radio across the uk online on dab and on your smart speaker the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio if you enjoyed that be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1 monday to friday on talk radio via dab online or via the talk radio app and if you have an opinion on the stories we cover we'd love to hear from you call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.